and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord community Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Korva. And I'm Kikita Kaori. Yes, we have a special guest today. We have Nick Kempen. He is the new person in charge of podcasting, the new podcast Tokyo of the Five Rings. But before we get to that, uh, we have some lore. We have a new fiction to go over. When the Wave Strikes the Shore by Mary Murdoch. Before we uh, talk about when the wave strikes the shore, we did have one little bit of news for the podcast. Uh, We have joined the uh, D20 Radio uh, Podcast Network, which is just a a collection of podcasts in the gaming group community that focuses on, uh, has a lot of fantasy flight uh, podcasts and different things. So it's good for us to share our podcast with a wider audience who might be not on the Discord, but are interested in the uh, L5R role-playing game. So we're excited to join with them. Yep, looking forward to that, being part of the D20 Radio Podcast Network. Okay, so first off, we're going to talk about When the Wave Strikes Ashore by Mary Murdoch. As you may guess from the reference to the wave, because the Army of the Rising Wave is the Dragon Clan Army. Uh, this follows on from Agasha Simiko retiring to protest Baishi Shoju, and this is Miramoto Hitomi reacting to this. Uh, she's not happy. Let's just put it that way. Uh, she has decided that uh, it is time to take justice into her own hands on the grounds that no one else can do it. There are pleas from people in her own clan and the Crane clan basically saying, uh, peace. You know, let's let's try the peaceful route. And uh, she's very, very much not into that. So she brings her army into the Imperial Palace, sweeps the halls, and when she gets to Shoja's quarters, he happens to have his son there, Dairu. And because she remembers how she felt when her brother was killed in front of her when she was a child... She decides to not simply kill Shoju, but instead to arrest him. Uh, and that's pretty much it. But there are, there are a lot of little, little fiddly details in there. It's sort of clear, but I thought it might be useful to emphasize what Hitomi's actually doing here. Hitomi has formulated a plan by which she is going to use her army, the Army of the Rising Wave, to take the capital. She is fully expecting resistance. She expects that Shoju has suborned the Imperial Guard and at least has Scorpion troops there and probably allied clans. She she certainly fully expects resistance throughout the city. Um, who would be stupid enough to kill the Emperor without having allies secured? Uh, So that's what she expects. So she has created a strategy by which she is going to do this. Her strategy is first to use her army to secure Otis on Uchi, claim the outer city, uh, claim the walls of the inner city, uh, and make sure that she is not struck from behind. So after the very first scene, which is kind of still in the morning uh, when court opened, when she is being angry uh, about... uh, Sumiko resigning and all of that, uh, she, you know, between then and the evening, she has basically conquered Otis Aruchi with her army. 
Um, so that's that's the first part. Is she's sec- she's securing the inner city, and then when we see her again, she is at that point going to secure the palace exterior. Um, and then her plan is to enter the palace, secure the palace, and then kill Bayushi Shoju. So this is a, a very full combat plan, but we kind of miss a whole day of fighting in the middle of this. So it's a, a little... A lot gets lost to work out. Yeah, this, this is the Dragon Clan coup. I made a joke yes. way back when, when FFG first started. Uh, and and so, some of the fictions were coming out. And it began to realize we weren't going towards the traditional Scorpion Clan coup. And then people were saying, the Lion are going to be doing this. And then the Dragon put their army in. I started just joking. Every Clan coup. And it's happening. I swear, it is happening. Every Clan is going to do a coup by the end of this. I'm sure of it now. So this is the Dragon Clan coup. Uh, This is a large actual um, day of... If not fighting, depending on how much resistance Satomi met in the city, um, mm. and, and, you know, she's going in loaded for bear, that's for sure. Aye. Uh, load, loaded for several bears, I should think, really. <laughs> yes. Because she's expecting resistance. She's absolutely expecting everyone else to stop, but that doesn't happen. Uh, there is mention made of uh, Chainmail, Kasuri Mail, Kusari Mail, I apologize, which was. It's been part of Japanese armor since at least the 1270s, which is the Mongol invasions. You get full suits of Kusari, but you also get it used on standard armor, like on the armored sleeves, for example. You'd often have uh, chain links on top of that, and it might kind of reinforce some of the the gaps. So that's a thing that often turns up. But you also get entire suits that are of mail, uh, often chains sewn to cloth as opposed to the western style where it's a it's a garment in its own right the the chain the the links themselves make up the cloth as it were one of the things that showed up in the story was miramoto retsugu uh it wouldn't be particularly mentioned but he is a he is a subordinate to hitomi in the army of the rising wave uh but he is a well-known lcg character for the dragon who has been there since core so uh, people will probably be excited to see him from the LCG and find out who he is. So, yeah, this is, this is the crossover between the <gasps> crossover character. Uh, he's, he's from the other TV series that's been going on. It's also mentioned here that the Chancellor, who is uh, Kakita Yoshi, would normally be the acting emperor. That, that would be the normal person who would be regent. So it is specifically mentioned that Shoju is only regent because the edict from the emperor stated he was going to be regent. Normally, it would just be the chancellor. So that's been stated. That's, I think that, so that's where it would normally have gone. Yeah, so Yoshi in this story gives access to the palace with a writ of allowance. Um, so that means mm. basically Yoshi is running the palace at, at this point. He's, he's in charge. Um, if he had not... Uh, since Hitomi was going in expecting fighting, which we, she did, mm. uh, then a bunch of people who would have gotten killed need not have, uh, yeah. you know, could have gotten killed that did not need to get killed. With the writ, there there are a bunch of people who are honor bound to defend the palace. Yep, yep, period. Yep. I mean, that's their that's their job to defend the palace, and even if they disapproved or showed you, they would have been required to fight. 
if Hitomi didn't have that. But since she um, does not appreciate things like that very much <clears throat> and kind of expected and wants a fight, she can't see what Yoshi is doing here as anything but like a stalling tactic or anything. Whereas, like, no, this is so the Sapoon don't fight you and all die trying to stop you from getting in. It's a fairly, fairly big thing. <laughs> it's interesting that Yoshi, or possibly Shoju, or possibly both, between the two of them, and it is not entirely clear how much they contributed, basically pretty much everyone who doesn't need to get in the way of Hitomi's army does not get in the way of Hitomi's army, which is someone did a lot of coordination. Yeah, that's really, really hard uh, to, to get, like that many people to stand down in front of a really angry army. I mean, just that. <laughs> yeah, you're getting a lot of people. First off, you're getting the people whose literal job is to stop exactly this. You know, this is, this is precisely and exactly what they are trained to stop. And you're getting them to not do that. And you're also getting all of the courtiers, you know, bless their little hearts, but they're not going to know what to do if suddenly an enormous army shows up. And they have to be gotten out of the way, or they're going to get themselves killed just by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Same with the servants. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, someone's, someone's done a lot of work behind the scenes here. And that would have happened while Hitomi was conquering <laughs> Oda Sanichi. You know, they would have... Oh, yeah, she's on her way. Yeah, time, time to enact our cunning plan, which worked pretty well. Uh, there's an interesting thing. Some people say whether uh, there's some argument whether it's a continuity error or, or what. But Hitomi comes into Shoju's room and she's all like, time to kill Shoju. But his son is there and she has this moment of, oh, he is the same age I was when my brother was killed in front of me. And, and, and thus she thinks maybe murdering the guy right now isn't the best plan. <laughs> but she was eight and Dairu is 13. And so some people are going, oh, is this a continuity error or is Hitomi just really terrible at guessing kids' ages? I think Did, she probably hasn't been around a lot of kids. I, I, think, I think also uh, Shoji was right. Okay, okay, son, um, someone's coming through that door. From what he said, he wasn't sure whether it was going to be Lion. He thought he was expecting Toturi, I think. But then no, again, I think he knew. I just like played maybe it off he that said way. that. Maybe, maybe this is just a thing he said. But someone's coming through that door, right? Wear your most innocent, young-looking mask, or just do you put on put it. Oh, actually, no. He might not be wearing a mask. He might not be. Uh, he no, he's a, wearing a, a his empathy. dad's mask. Right. Yes. Baby so, daddy. so make the make make wear the mask that makes you look the youngest and most most fragile and innocent. You know, so there's, so there's, a, there's the biggest chance of that whoever comes to that door not just murdering both of us. So that might be there as well. And oh, yeah, just Hitomi might not be able to tell the difference. Maybe Daru, Daru is just young for his age, uh, small for his age or something. I, I am sure that uh, Shoji knew exactly who was going to come through that door and knew her past. We, we know that her past is actually very, very well known because it's been mentioned uh, in the invention with uh, where, where uh, uh, the Asako jumps out of the window. <laughs> the library, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember. So she mentions that she knows that there was a dragon Hatamoto whose other brother, whose brother was crushed by a Tetsubo wielded by Hida Yakumo 
Uh, she knows that, and she's just nobody in the imperial capital. So Shoju knows about yeah. Itomi's brother. I, I, I'd say normally, like, like old 5R Shoju, absolutely he knows. Not well, Obviously, he, he knows about Hitomi's past, but he, he, yeah, he would have known who was going to come through that door. Uh, new 5R Shoju? I'm not so sure. I don't think he's his got quite as good a grasp. I don't think he's quite as all-knowing as the Oh, old I think version. he absolutely knew. I think he absolutely knew and had Dairu there specifically with the hopes that it would make uh, Hitomi check just by, you know, remembering what happened in her past. And that's not saying he's all-knowing or anything. I'm just saying that we know this is public knowledge. Oh, sure. And we know that she's had all day conquering the city. That's true. And he's going to know who, um, you know, and they coordinated to make sure whoever lets them in, you know, comes in smoothly or, you know, he knew. <laughs> so that was, that was staged, but that's okay. That, yeah. that works. <laughs> uh, he, he could be competent at it. Anyway, I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about, uh, Hitomi's failure. Mm. Yes, because, yeah. (laughs) Well, Hitomi's job as assigned by Tagashi was to go look after the prince. Mm. And and, uh, Mitsu and Hitomi argued a bit as to which prince they were supposed to look after, but one went to look after Daisetsu and one went to look after Sotori. Yeah, in the city in the end, and now they have two princes. So Titomi goes and follows the prince properly to go look after the prince, go look after Sotori. And she loses him in Kwanan's thing, and she's not out there looking for him. She came back to the capital. <laughs> We have no indication. I mean, maybe she sent people to look for him, but we don't. We haven't heard anything about that. So if she had secured the prince, right, if if somehow, either one, if the dragon had managed to actually secure either prince and have him available to plop on the throne as soon as uh, Shouju's crimes are revealed, there would be no need for any civil war because... You know, the regent would take over or Sotori. I mean, Sotori sucks. Don't get me wrong. But everyone would definitely say if a prince showed up and Sotori was gone, boom, here is, uh, you know, here's the prince and life would proceed. And then there wouldn't be any need for a coup and there wouldn't be any war following this. But uh, Hitomi did not secure the prince. She went back to the palace. Yeah, yeah. So now we've got the Dragon Clan coup, but a lot of people are saying this is actually the Crane Clan coup because now <laughs> Yoshi is going to end up being regent. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, there's no one else really at this point. Uh, so there you go. So this is really Yoshi's victory in a way. And um, Hitomi's really just played into pretty much everyone else's hands. The thing that could have happened is that you don't necessarily need an emperor there as long as nobody argues. <gasps> Blasphemy. That's how we got the Gozaku, right? <laughs> Shogunate time. 
if if Hitomi hadn't done this and Shouju just hung around in his quarters, the machinery of the imperial capital would have just kept rolling until an emperor showed up. Just like nobody acknowledges the problem, then there's no problem is a very uh, imperial courty way to think about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> As, as long as there's no decisions that need to be made, it could have stalled for some length of time. But Hitomi kind of is the cat pushing the cup off the table. It's 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 done now. It's on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's she's not really. This is this is basically one entire fic long unmasking. Honestly, this is just a this is an outburst. You know, you, you clear all your strife from the one seat. No, I have too much strife. My unmasking uh, well, is to the conquer Imperial the palace. capital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, you've, you've conquered the outer city. No, too much strife. Um, well, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a big, that's an interesting one. I'd love to see that. This is going to have to percolate through all the other fictions, and it's going to be really interesting. Is, is, is Torturi going to go, wait, turn around? So, uh, Nick, did you have anything on uh, any thoughts on this story before we go on and interview you? I know we've kind of charged over you doing our normal thing. <laughs> oh, no worries. No worries. Um, I just want to say I actually really enjoyed the story. Um, I like that it wasn't like just a typical like Scorpion Clan coup as has happened in the past. I'm glad they're trying new things and really trying to explore the emotions of the characters and new ways that really add depth to them. So I'm very happy about that. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I guess we can turn this around and talk with you a while about uh, yourself and your podcast. So uh, welcome on to the RPG podcast, Nick, Nick Kempen. Tell us about yourself. Well, um, so my name is Nick Kempen. I live in Japan, Tokyo specifically. I've lived here for a little over two years now. Uh, before that, I lived in a couple different places in the United States, Texas, Colorado, Utah. Um, I've served in the Navy and the Reserves for, oh my gosh, how long is it now? Nine years? Nine years. Um, so I've got a little bit of military background, um, and I'm studying Japanese. I'm always studying Japanese, trying to get better at it. Uh, hopefully, I'll be hitting uh, N2 level by next December, so I can apply for Kokugakuin University here in Tokyo and train on becoming a Shinto priest, if all goes according to plan. So, um, what's your connection to Legend of the Five Rings? How did you get it into that in the first place? So, my very first time really kind of learning anything about L5R was probably back in 2002, um, and that was seeing uh, Oriental Adventures, the 3.0 D&D version of it, and seeing it in a library. Uh, and just really being interested in, you know, the idea of samurai as uh, something you could roleplay as. Um, so for me, that was like kind of my first introduction, but I never really explored L5R outside of that book originally, not until probably the same year that Ivory Edition came out. Um, that's when at a convention I saw some fantastic, beautiful artwork uh, of some of the characters in L5R. And I just... At that point, I'm like, okay, I need to know what what this is from. Um, and I learned, of course, it's from L5R, and that's how I really originally got into it, was playing an uh, Ivory Edition up until the end of the previous version. 
So it was originally the LCG that I played, not LCG, CCG I played. Um, I didn't really play the RPG until uh, 5th edition. Cool. Uh, can you tell us about uh, Tokyo of the Five Rings and what you're planning to do with that podcast? Yeah, so um, Tokyo of the Five Rings is really trying to delve into the cultures that are behind Legend of the Five Rings. Uh, the goal is to look into both Japanese culture as well as uh, Shinto, Buddhism, Confucianism to an extent, and further on hopefully talk a little bit about the other East Asian cultures that inspire parts of L5R. Uh, the goal is to explore these cultures as well as show how these cultures may be misrepresented to an extent in L5R, correcting some misconceptions and suggesting ways to improve your game. Do you have a favorite L5R clan? Uh, yeah, uh, my favorite clan is the Mantis clan. It was the very first uh, deck I purchased uh, back in Ivory Edition was a Mantis clan deck. Um, but my interest in them actually originates all the way back from Oriental Adventures, uh, where they were basically nothing at that point. They were a great clan that had fallen on hard times, and you couldn't even choose them as a baseline for any samurai. But the design of the characters, the kind of a little bit of information you got in the book about them was very interesting to me. All right. Um, so do you actually play L5R uh, in an RPG or anything there in Tokyo with uh, other folks from from Japan? Uh, yeah. So I actually have played L5R a couple times out here in Tokyo. we got a small little group uh, that meets up probably once, twice a month um, at a game store. It's a whole like chain of game stores uh, called Yellow Submarine. Um, but we meet up at one of them and we play the LCG. Uh, specifically, we're playing the skirmish format because it's uh, easier to learn and get people interested, especially with the amount of rules necessary to learn the main game for a game that's not translated into Japanese. So we definitely want to use the easiest version to try and explain it um, to people because my Japanese is not good enough to explain all the amount of information that the uh, base game has. It's a lot. <laughs> okay. I was just like, how, how is it viewed uh, over there? You know, have you done the role-playing game too? Or you know, have, have other people been interested in it? Has it received? So there, there's kind of a, a, mixed, a mixed feeling about it, to be honest. Uh, the people I've played with, I've played with people from Japan, from uh, Taiwan, from Thailand. Um, so, you know, we've got a whole bunch of different people out here who have played the game. But there's definitely mixed feelings about it, especially from the Japanese community, because it's like, well, you're making everything Japanese. You know, you got all these other cultures that are kind of showing up, but you put on this layer of Japanese and it makes a lot of the players out here feel like all of East Asia is just assumed to be the same, very homogenized. So there is definitely this view of like, that's a little weird. But then at the same time, it's like, but we get to play as mystical samurai and that's kind of cool. You know, we haven't really been able to experience this it, from an American perspective. So that's interesting. So it's got this kind of back and forth of, you know, there's some cool things they're doing with our culture. There's some bad things they're doing with our culture. They're making our culture seem homogenized. They're doing this. So it's it's very hit or miss, it feels like. Mm -hmm. Are there specific things that really seem to be, I mean, I, so you've mentioned the kind of mushing together of cultures as an issue. Are there other things that, that kind of show up? Yeah, so one of the big ones is the use of uh, kami from Shinto. Not the word kami, but specific kami. Uh, for example, Amaterasu Omikami, uh, Inari Okami, 
Um, my brain just like melted on me. Uh, <laughs> but there, there, there's a good chunk of the uh, Kami in L5R, uh, often referred to as fortunes in L5R, are from the actual religion out here, uh, from Shinto. So there's kind of this thought of why are they using, you know, our gods in a not, um, in not Japan. So, for example, you know, they do use uh, kami in a lot of other media, uh, like the, an anime called Noragami, where you have the kami shown in a very fantastical way. It's, it takes place in kind of modern Japan. But kind of the difference there is that it's still taking place in Japan. So it makes sense for the kami to be, you know, there and it respects and kind of uh, pays homage to the originating myths. Where when you pull them away from Japan and insert them into a fantasy world, you start getting issues. For example, uh, in L5R, you have the concept of like cleanliness being really important, purification. Uh, it's you know, done at shrines and whatnot. In L5R, it's the same in Japan. The difference, though, is that in Japan, the reasoning there you can find in mythology. You can find where they kind of originates in myth. But because the myths aren't the same and are closer to, in a lot of ways, Greek mythology, you don't have that same connection. So you don't have this, like, hey, um, purification is important because uh, Izanagi Okami, after he escaped, you know, the underworld, purified himself, and born from that was Amaterasu Omikami uh, and a whole bunch of others. You, you get this disconnect. You know, where does that originate? Is it important to the society if you don't have an originating point? Another complaint I get is actually about Bushido. So a lot of Japanese people are kind of like really hesitant about that because Bushido was created in like the eight, late 1800s, early 1900s, almost as a kind of a propaganda tool of what samurai were for the West. And then that same information ended up being used by the military government of Japan to basically say, hey, you're all samurai, we're all going to fight and die for the emperor, uh, and it led to a lot of atrocities during World War I and World War II. So you got these, these issues that derive from the word Bushido, and it being anachronistic to what samurai actually were. So those are kind of the issues that uh, I've noticed out here with uh, L5R in general. Well, um, what kind of things um, might be liked out there? What, what, what kind of things have people enjoyed, if anything? <laughs> well, actually, people do enjoy aspects of it. They like the uh, mono no aware aspect of the game. Uh, that's a mechanic that you don't really see in a lot of games. And they like the you know homage to Japanese culture that comes from that. Because mono no aware is very important to Japanese culture. So, you know, seeing that encapsulated in a game is really kind of revolutionary in a lot of ways. So that's one thing that really sticks out. Uh, the fact that most of the artwork is done by Asian and Japanese people specifically is another thing where you can kind of see that, you know, aspects like, wow, they're paying attention to uh, artists out here. And then some of the art is very, very traditional Japanese design. It's like, that's really pretty. I really like that. Some of the names hit or miss. Uh, you have some where it's like, that's like a proper Japanese name. That sounds really good. I like this character. Then you have another one where it's like, that's not Japanese. Like, where does the name Huleng come from? You know, that sounds Chinese. You know, that's that one has, hits a lot of issues in Japan, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but there are definitely some positives. In regards to the lore, people seem to really like kind of the aspect of 
people trying to be better. The, the conflict between one's duty and what one wants to do. You see that a lot in kind of Confucian society as well. You know, you have to put yourself second to the family or to your duty compared to, you know, what you would have to do if you wanted to do it your way. Uh, you see that a lot actually here in Japan right now. Um, you have this conflict between kind of the individualist society and the collectivist society that's developing, uh, both from Western uh, influences and from you know traditional Japanese and Confucian influences. So you kind of see that to an extent encapsulated in L5R, and some Japanese people really like that, being able to kind of experience that through a game. Oh, that's really that's really interesting. That is that's it is fascinating to hear a different perspective. Yeah, no, I've, I've really enjoyed my time out here uh, interacting with uh, Japanese people and, you know, kind of trying to see how this game does out here and kind of the thought process. So it's been very, very interesting. Are there changes you'd like to make if you could? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the big ones would be giving fictional names to all of the uh, comics. So this is something I've gone back and forth on a few times. I've been like, well, you know, maybe just making so there's no fictional names and it's all real world kami. And then you really just emphasize what those kami are about. And then you can show, you know, respect and stuff to it, you know. But the more I think about it, the more I go like, it's so disconnected from Japan that it's hard to do that in a respectful way. Because otherwise you're basically having to just completely take the Nihon uh, Shoki and the Kojiki and just put that into Rokugan, but it doesn't fit. It doesn't work that way. So my thought process is more of just changing the names uh, of all the real world kami to fictional kami. It's not like they don't have fictional kami. Every single one of the founding kami for the great clans are fictional. Uh, Onantangu is fictional. So you have, you know, they, they can do it, but they've kind of done this halfway thing which I, I don't feel jives with what they're really trying to accomplish. So that's one thing I would definitely change. Another one would actually be the removal of the caste system. Ooh. Yeah, so th th this one comes down to the fact that the caste system was something that was instituted during the Tokugawa period. Um, and I get that that's part of the inspiration for L5R. Um, but the caste system leaves a lot of bad taste in people's mouth because there are issues still related to that here. In yes, especially right um, down the lower end. Yeah, exactly. The historical uh, caste system and that is still ongoing and up and I mean, yeah, there's a lot of discrimination still going with that even now. It, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty bad in that regard. Um, and the fact that they used the same terms that were used for that caste system and those lower castes, which has a really negative connotation in Japan, causes some tension because it's like, wow, you know, that do they know what that means? Like they, they do realize that's bad, right? That that's a lot of the stuff I get from out here. It's like that's you really shouldn't be saying that. Like saying that out loud in Japan now is really, really disrespectful. The same with the word uh, gaijin. It's not really used in Japan anymore because it has such a negative connotation. The word used is gaikokujin, which is basically a person from a foreign country. Yeah, as opposed to an outside person, which yeah. is what gaijin is. Because the implication is you're outside of everything. Whereas a gaikokujin is rather more outside of this particular country. Exactly, exactly. 
So those would be my two biggest changes that I want to do for L5R. I've, I've certainly I've, another option for the Kami names. I've heard it like, given that we so often just say Lady Sun, Lord Moon, just keep doing that. You don't you don't even need to give them Japanese sounding names. Yeah, just completely cut the names entirely out that they have. You know, there's still a whole bunch you have to change, like the Seven Fortunes, which are based off of the Seven Lucky Gods of Japan. Um, you know, that that's very, you know, distinctively Japanese. Those are Japanese names for three Indian, three Chinese, and one Japanese kami. But yeah, which would actually give them more freedom, I think, to make the, the sort of changes they want to make. And Inari as well would be a, a fortunate price. Are there any elements of uh, Japanese culture um, or, or folklore? Well, anything to do with, with what Legend of the Fire is about. Anything that you think that we could be using from Japanese culture that we're not at the moment? So I would like to see more about Matsuri, to be honest. Um, Matsuri and rituals are exceedingly important in traditional Japanese culture. Uh, I, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Golden Week or Silver Week. Golden Week, um, yes. In Japan. Uh, okay. large, largely from the don't visit Japan during Golden Week, everything's packed. so golden week is basically like five holidays in a row where everyone gets the time off um and it's everyone goes on vacation they go visit family and things like that it's very very important um but the one i want to bring attention to is silver week which literally just happened this last weekend and these happen on the um equinox so during this time period you go to your family's grave and you clean it and you you know, redo the offerings of the grave and things like that. I feel like that's that depth is kind of missing to an extent from Alphamar. I know it's really hard to get that same level of depth in a fictional setting, but it'd be very interesting to kind of see this depth being added more and more. Uh, with each of the books that are added, there's definitely more depth being uh, added, which is great. But uh, Matsuri in general are just such an integral part. Uh, every shrine has their own Matsuri. Uh, there are Matsuri that are shared between a whole bunch of shrines, such as New Year being exceedingly important. Uh, you go to the shrine on New Year's and you do that for, um, you know, one of the main reasons is kind of creating a good first impression to the kami. Um, and you get purified during that. There's another one during summer where there's a huge purification event. Um, so for Matsuri, these things are important. Uh, other ones I'd like to see would be uh, Harai which is uh, purification rites that are a little different than how they're kind of shown in uh, L5R. These are literally going to rivers and to the ocean and to waterfalls and basically bathing in them and purifying yourself through special clothing and being purified from any uh, kagare, which is like ritual or spiritual impurity that you accrue just through living your life. You know, in a society that's supposed to be very focused on purification to an extent from you know the, re- the writings and what have been shown this is something that's uh, missing a little bit again it's little things like this uh that would add a lot of depth uh we don't really see the importance of rivers in a spiritual sense we see the importance of hot springs and cleanliness that way but i feel like we're missing the other part of the equation so i'd like to see that um uh, forest bathing is another thing that happens out here in japan where people will just go to the forest and just kind of feel that the green of nature and really kind of reconnect with that. Uh, and L5R, the forests are seen as almost entirely primordially evil. So you, you miss out on that aspect. I would like to see 
less evil forests and more forests where people can just enjoy themselves a little bit. I'm not saying all forests suddenly be made nice, but, you know, show that there's kind of this respect. Um, the other thing is actually wolves. So in Japan, wolves are seen as a beneficial thing. They are not seen as bad. They're not seen as negative. Th this derives from the fact that they were not a pastoral society, but completely agrarian. They focused on, you know, getting food from the oceans and from rice paddies. And their biggest threats were things like wild boar and deer. It wasn't, you know, wolves. Wolves weren't hunting their cows because they didn't have cattle. But they kept these animals from destroying their fields. In L5R, you have a very similar setup where, you know, you're not supposed to be eating meat from, you know, the world because that's considered kind of polluted and bad. You know, you get fish and you get rice and you get barley and you get other things like that that you're supposed to be eating in general. Uh, unless you're the dragon clan, then you get, what was it? Uh, mountain tuna. Mountain, mount, mountain tuna, exactly. So in general, though, you don't hear things about herding and grazing animals. So the, the idea of wolves being a negative in L5R always felt weird to me because that's how they are viewed in the previous iteration. I haven't really seen much about wolves in the current version, but I'd like to see the positive aspects of that brought into the that's, game. Again, another perspective I hadn't seen. I have to say, the one thing I would love to, to, to see is a more uh, in-depth view of the social obligations, the giddy that the samurai had. And that, like you're talking about the collective versus the individual. And I think I would really love to see kind of not quite not quite like a list, but I don't know if, if such things is, but like really getting into the social obligations that someone would feel growing up to their parents, to the old elders. I, yeah. I think it'd be a cool thing to see. Yeah. I would like to see more exams. Yeah. Even though it's not uh, Japanese, we talked about the Chinese exams and there is at various points in Japanese history, there were heavy doses of uh, infusions of Chinese thought brought into uh, yes. Japan early on, like from the from the Heian period and Fujiwara period. And I would like to see more elements of those periods brought in, um, and including some of the the more meritocracy that you brought in, like. You could have exams for certain positions. Like, why not? Yeah, you, you, it might be a very narrow pipe to become a, a samurai case through exams, maybe like one a year or something like that. But eh, why not? It's a very small number of people. You can have some cool stories around that. Well, they have the 20 goblin winter, winter and if that's not an exam, I don't know what is. <laughs> it's a practical it's a practical exam I mean you know what, what more yeah, could you want that is definitely a practical exam yeah. <laughs> well this has been fascinating um, so as we've said right at the beginning you're starting a podcast slash vidcast slash I'm not quite sure what the format is what, what the name for the format is but um, of Tokyo the Five Rings which is yes. currently on YouTube, I believe. Yes, we have the uh, first episode out on the Pod Game uh, Pod <laughs> Court Games podcast uh, YouTube page, mm -hmm. and we'll make sure there's a link to that in our show notes. So, looking forward to more information about that. And that was a, what was tell us about that first episode. So that first episode was kind of exploring the creation myth of both uh, L5R and, to a lesser extent, uh, Japanese uh, mythology. And, and kind of just trying to explore the differences and uh, 
explain, you know, what that kind of means by having those differences. So, um, and how would people get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out to you and ask more stuff? So you can find me typically on Discord. Um, in the L5R Discord page, I am Orida Kazuhito. Kazuhito. So I'm, I'm using that name for uh, a very specific reason. Uh, Orida is the uh, family name of the minor clan that I created, um, specifically trying to design ways of really showing how you can combine traditional Japanese mythology with uh, L5R in a inclusive and positive way. All right. Well, uh, I think that's all of our stuff today. Uh, we are happy to talk to you, uh, give our love to everybody out there. Um, but that's it for us this week. All right. It's been fun. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> so let's give a call out to our sister podcasts and patrons. So and as well as the role playing game podcast and Tokyo the Five Rings, there is the L5R LCG podcast. And we have two actual play role-playing podcasts, Crimson Gold Agonies and Fortune and Strife. Our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs, as well as our website, where you can store and see longer-term information, summaries of our podcasts, great role-playing game tools, and more. Uh, for our Patreons, we have special bonus content like adventure seeds, watch parties, and all kinds of cool stuff. You can find us online at courtgamespod.com which is our main website you can find us on twitter at twitter.com slash courtgamespod and on patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames that's it for us this week uh, this is Kikita Kaori may the fortunes favor you and until we meet again keep your jade handy